Your Mother Isn't in Heaven, written in red by A.C. Phillips. Well, this is definitely the middle of nowhere, said Veda, gesturing to the almost featureless landscape sweeping by. I can't believe I'm out here on a Friday night. I kind of like it, I said. There's something serene about it. And hey, at least it's not Sunday morning. I used to have to get up at 7 on Sundays and put on stupid-looking itchy clothes. You're lucky. I've never dragged you to church once. You're 14 and this is really your first time. Yeah, she said, sighing. Lucky me. I smiled and took in the dreary scenery. Low rolling hills of dead yellow grass, a few scattered trees, random industrial looking buildings at the end of long driveways, all soaked and sad in the rain. I clicked the defrost up to full blast and set the wipers to intermediate. I mean, I don't get church, she suddenly blurted out. Do they think dinosaurs didn't exist or something? How can they believe that? Well, I said, not wanting to defend religion, but feeling obliged to present her with what I knew to be the facts. I think you're thinking of a particular subset of Christians known as the young earth creationists, who believe the earth is roughly 6,000 years old. Most Christians, at least the ones I know, completely accept the idea of evolution. They just assume, or rather believe, that God was the one that got it going. Her expression was one of barely perceptible recognition as if this information confirmed something she'd learned, forgotten, and only now recalled again. I knew the face well. I'd seen her mother, who'd been dead for three years, make it countless times. Veda's face had grown into a near-exact replica of her mother's, and in moments like the present one, in which she made one of those familiar expressions, for a brief, fleeting instant, I would be unsure of who I was looking at and what time I was living in. Hmm, she said. Like her mother, she didn't always like having things explained to her, but was too insatiably curious not to ask questions. These two factors often left her with a somewhat conflicted expression on her face. Another I knew well. I thought you liked coming along on my research outings. You used to say it was like a secret mission, remember? Mm-hmm, she said. Pretty dull mission so far. Oh, just you wait, I said. Tonight you're going to see things you've never seen before. Regular old church is indeed dull, but this isn't regular old church. This is a revival meeting. It's like... I struggled because lately she'd been mocking and ridiculing my analogies, saying they were outdated and didn't make sense. Okay, I said. If regular church is the DMV, this is a monster truck show. Huh? I knew her face so well I could predict the almost exact moment in which her scrunch of confusion would soften into the wonder of curiosity, just as her mother's would. So what is a revival, she said, in what I knew to be her mother's voice. Even the tone was the same, a subtle softness which revealed 
through any amount of presented attitude, an indelible childlike curiosity. They believe there's like an uprising of the spirit or something, a cyclical buildup of, oh, look, there it is. We didn't notice the background sound of the tires on the road until we pulled off the highway and onto the grass, and it suddenly vanished, and the car filled with a more intricate silence. We both stared through the windshield, our mouths hanging mute, our eyes busy taking in the sight of it. The parking was a disordered pattern around the large white tent, which glowed from the inside, swollen and alive with activity, taut ropes securing it to the ground, as if the whole thing were ready to lift up and fly away. Since the rain was so heavy, I tried to park as close as possible, but we still ended up getting soaked running in. As we approached, we could hear music over our wet footfalls. A woman with a welcoming smile held open a flap for us and told us to watch our step. Inside, it was perfectly warm and dry and full of light and people. A thin maroon carpet covered the floor, and as I stepped, I could feel the unevenness of the pallets underneath. Folding chairs were arranged in the familiar rows, angled slightly in on the small stage upon which a band was playing. We took seats on the right side in the center of the second-to-last row. I took my notebook out from under my shirt where I'd kept it dry from the rain and Veda saw me and giggled. Lately nothing was funnier to her than me fumbling like an old man. I would be bungling some simple task, struggling with a shoelace or a package, and instead of offering help, she would laugh and point her phone at me. But thankfully this time, she spared me the embarrassment and graciously looked away as I humbly exposed my hideous gut and battled with my ill-fitting jacket. We shared a knowing smile and she began sarcastically clapping along with the music. The music was... surprisingly incredible. The band was as tight as any touring band I'd seen, and there was an infectious quality to their energy. I turned and cut my hand over Veda's ear. Some of these people, I'm not kidding, are some of the best musicians you'll ever see perform live, I said, and I pulled away nodding to show my seriousness. Feverishly, I scribbled details into my notepad. The off-white color of the tent was a marshmallow held over a flame in the very first instant of browning. The lights were a glowing carpet of soft yellow LEDs suspended over the crowd. The smell was a rich stew. People, perfume, cologne, sweat, the canvas tent, the rain and wet grass, all of it cooked in the late evening heat. The music was catchy and artistic indie folk, performed with a level of authentic passion simply unknown to hipster shoegazing teens. The crowd was a good sample of the local community, with every level of class represented. Several people in suits, women in stunning dresses, teens in sharp neon colors, and even a poor-looking family all dressed in different shades of faded sweatpants. I decided the carpet was more of a plum color. There were seven rows of chairs, ten chairs in each row. Most people were standing and many had their eyes closed. Some had a single hand raised, and at least one in each row had both hands raised. Of these, a few were shamelessly or unknowingly displaying huge pit stains. Apparently requiring more space, some had drifted into the center aisles. Of these venturous few, all had both hands raised. 
I set my notepad down and stood up to get a better view of the band and started clapping along, giving Veda a little grin as I did. She knew how I liked to get involved in my research projects, and she smiled and stood up and began clapping along too. The singer was a short guy in his forties, balding terribly, but somehow confidently balding, like a young Jack Nicholson. His eyes were almost always shut. Sporadically, he would grip the neck of his guitar, raise it up and slam it back down in sync with the crash of the cymbals. The keyboardist was a stunning black woman in a loose pink dress with wild frizzy hair, who, when she wasn't singing backup vocals, was swirling her head around as if in the throes of a fever dream. The bass player was a tall skinny guy who sang backup with his eyes shut tight and a smile that never left his face. The drummer reminded me of the drummer from Weezer, aesthetically stiff and emotionless but rhythmically perfect. Having played in indie bands in the early 2000s, I felt I recognized the general sound the band was aiming for. I leaned over to Veda and cupped her ear again. This band is pretty good, I said. It's like popular worship songs but with indie rock breakdowns and crescendos. Pretty interesting. I dropped into my seat trying to scribble down every detail about it. The words indie hymnal came to mind but fell short of capturing the level of intense passion being shared between the crowd and the band. Religious emo? As I jotted down every detail, the music built and built until it finally crashed and broke through into a bright and melodic chorus, and I felt those familiar tingles prickling up my spine. It was strange that this sensation, to be slightly moved by a piece of music to the point of feeling that glittering release of oxytocin, was not even dependent on you being a fan of the music. It was completely involuntary. I found most Christian music to be terrible, but these songs were catchy and filled with infectious passion, youthful passion. The magazine had been right. There was something different about this latest rendition of tent revivals presently sweeping through the state. I slapped my composition notebook shut. Veda had almost the same face she'd had in the car when she was passively absorbing the new information. Her mother's infinitely curious eyes, hungrily drinking it all in. I stood up and whispered to her, the ones with their hands raised are all saying, I give up, thinking she'd laugh, because lately she seemed to love poking fun at people. But she didn't. She just kind of smiled with only her mouth and lifted her chin. I figured she was being respectful to the mood of the tent, which was deadly serious. People everywhere were expressing what appeared to be genuine emotion, and it was fairly gripping. Some were even weeping, totally lost in their personal declarations of faith. Some faces were so touching in their sincerity, I found myself having to look away, overcome with a kind of embarrassment for them. Indie folk worship pop? The almost indefinable music didn't last long. Now the sermon came, the boring part, as I used to call it as a kid. The sermon was a variation of one I'd heard dozens of times growing up. It was on heaven how great it was and how death really was, in a way, a good thing because we no longer had to feel any pain and could finally be back with God. The preacher was a stout middle-aged man in a dark blue suit with a gilded goatee that perfectly matched his thick mane of golden hair. 
He was charismatic, well-spoken, even funny, and had clearly practiced his routine a number of times. I was going to make a comment to Veda about how this was just as riveting as any local theater performance, but since she hadn't liked my last joke, I held off. The preacher described heaven not as a place, but rather simply being in the presence of God. It wasn't actually a physical location, but then his voice suddenly dropped and took on a solemn tone, and he said that unlike heaven, unfortunately, hell was in fact a very real place. He described it as total and utter blackness, like the cold depths of deep space, far away from the presence of God. But surely wasn't God everywhere? And then he added that on top of the feeling of being totally alone and outside all of the universe, there was the torture, which he only briefly alluded to by quoting a simplified version of the verse which covered the subject. The weeping and gnashing of teeth, he said. The whole crowd was dead silent. For a few moments there was only the sound of his tired breath in the microphone. This was the crucial part of the sermon, the moment where he had the audience in the absolute palm of his hand. Here, in this instant of all their suspended terror, he changed his tone again, and with blonde eyebrows raised, offered the simple solution. You only needed to pray to Jesus and accept him as your savior and you too could avoid this eternally frozen and lonely torture. And of course the sermon ended in the predictable fashion, with a few of the musicians sneaking on stage to begin quietly playing their instruments as the preacher prayed and asked people to come forward and repent and receive Jesus Christ into their hearts. He finished with an eager plea, he said, Now I know there's one person out there tonight who needs to feel God in their life. I don't know if there's more than one. And as he spoke, people rose from their seats and meandered up to the stage. I see we do have a few souls who want to be lifted with the Holy Spirit tonight. Yes, repent and be forgiven. You will all be washed in the blood. You will all be born again. Come forward and receive Jesus into your hearts. I could hardly scribble down what he was saying fast enough. How caught up in and sure of this convoluted lie they all were. People, when they reached the stage, collapsed to their knees and huddled in little groups over which the preacher and members of the band prayed. One woman was lying face down on the plum carpet. Another woman was kneeling beside her, resting a symbolically supportive hand on the small of the prone woman's back. Yes, Jesus, the preacher bellowed. I can feel you in this room tonight, so come forward. I know you can feel God talking to you. You hear him saying, I love you. I died for you. I don't care about your sin. You, my child, are already forgiven. He stepped carefully around the clusters of weeping penitents, like an uptight explorer going through a swamp. So please now, I feel there's one person in particular who needs to come forward and receive Jesus. Even more people got up and went forward. Nearly two-thirds of the crowd was now kneeling around the stage. It all of a sudden became clear to me that the preacher was heading in my direction, and I looked up at his face, and his burning eyes peered right into mine. I froze, terrified. It's you, he said, pointing dead at me, 
no hesitation whatsoever. My heart jumped. I considered giving him a subtle apologetic wave, maybe try and save him some embarrassment since most of the tent had turned to see whom he was indicating. But I wasn't going to just save him some face. And then he said, You, young lady! And my heart tightened like a fist, and I stiffened up with a jolt and sucked in a few quick breaths, as if something ice cold had touched the bare skin on my back. In slow motion, I watched Veda stand up and make her way forward, drawn like a person under a spell. You, you young lady, the preacher said, moving toward her. The Lord told me you would listen. Cries, almost cheers, vocal eruptions of religious fervor, and several hearty amens rang out as Veda fell crying into the preacher's arms. I was distressed, but I found myself also crying just seeing her genuine display of emotion. The preacher, however, a seasoned pro, didn't weep a bit. I certainly wasn't crying because I was having a kind of return-to-the-faith prodigal son moment lived vicariously through her. I hated the idea of her getting mixed up in religion, especially at such a young age. But just like most in the crowd, I was caught up in the emotion of the moment. I let her go up. I could hardly believe she'd done it. She hadn't needed to consult me a bit. But I didn't take it as defiance. It was just her making a decision for herself, her personal choice, one she likely knew I thought was stupid. As she walked away from me, I felt like I was fading out of existence. I just stood there, helplessly watching her go, reaching the stage with her head lowered in prayer, the hands of strangers resting on her head and shoulders. She was my daughter, but from behind, under all their hands, it was like she was a stranger too. I didn't write anything else down in my notebook. The ending prayer receiving salvation segment lasted the longest, and it was nearly eleven by the time we trudged through the rain again and climbed back into the car. I was thinking about how best to approach the subject. Not with ridicule, of course. I had to simply be curious, maybe ask her how she was feeling. Let her lead. Let her open up, if she wanted to. And of course she did. Like her mother, she wasn't shy. Clicking her seatbelt, she said, to my astonishment, Why didn't you go up? Careful not to take on a mocking tone, I asked her if she was kidding. She wasn't. I was so shocked I didn't say anything right away. Mute and stupefied, I pulled the car off the grass and back onto the road. Well, I finally started. I guess because I don't believe, you know? But what about heaven, she said, her eyes and head lowered, her tone disarmingly gentle, just the way her mother's had been when she wanted to elicit my sympathy. Don't you think that's where mom could be? In the back of my mind, I had feared a discussion of the afterlife might resurrect certain emotions in her, but I had never suspected they would lead to this powerful of an effect on her reasoning. We'd sat through dozens of TED Talks together, and she was usually the one who was explaining the latest scientific findings to me. Part of me hoped she was playing a great trick, and that in the next instant she was going to announce she had been playing a part, and that her passion was now method acting. No, no, I don't think so, I said. So what, you think mom's just rotting away in the dirt? Well, no, I wouldn't put it 
Did she just stop existing? You don't think there's a little more to it? Yes, I said. Well, no. I looked at her. Passing headlights flooded the interior, raking yellow light across her serious face, giving her eyes a fiery flash for a long instant. I swore it was her mother. I... I think she's... I started, and then BAM, an act of God. The rear left tire nearly exploded, or at least sounded like it did. But when I pulled over and got out to change it, alone of course because it was still raining, I discovered only a small hole. At first I was miserable operating the rain, but as I labored at my simple task, with my simple tools, like me, working despite the conditions, I began to find it incredibly enjoyable. It wasn't cold, I was just wet, and as each car passed I felt more heroic, like I was gaining status as a kind of martyr. I thought about Veda and about her mother and about what probably happens when you die. On the way there we had been on the same wavelength, father and daughter. She had still been my child. Now on the way home, on the same road, in the same seats, in the same car, the windshield cleared by the same wipers set to the same intermediate setting, things had changed. Thinking of death, I suddenly desired to gaze up at the stars. I had forgotten the rain even though I was getting soaked. I stared through the falling drops at the cloudy darkness hidden in mystery, the forever unknowable void. Replacing the jack in the trunk and wiping my hands and my jeans, and admiring the small yet sturdy spare tire in place, the wet black rubber glistening under the yellow streetlight, I was filled with an indescribable sense of paternal satisfaction. I got back in and let out a deep breath as I gripped a steering wheel with both hands. Your mother isn't in heaven, I said, turning to her, and she isn't in the ground. I had no idea where the words were coming from, but I went on anyway. She's still here, in a way, not physically, but here nonetheless. Her eyes had that look of openness, ready and willing to receive new information, if there actually were to be any. Don't you see, I went on, she's not in the dirt and she's not in some silly luxury sky hotel waiting. She's here, in you, the way you do everything you do, the way you're curious and want to learn like her, the way you're independent and make your own choices. That's her. Your eyes are hers. Your voice is hers. Your spirit or whatever it is, is hers. Hell, the way you're grabbing your hair right now, your hand like a spider and lifting it and letting it fall and dragging your fingers through it, it's her. That's her way of doing it. I used to take her on my outings and she would always find a way to side with the subject I was investigating, every time, just as you're doing now, don't you see? Remember when I took her with me to interview those doomsday preppers and she went out and bought a rifle and a water purifier? You liked the same music and movies she did, the same foods. Just by you going about in the world and talking and being, you keep her alive. Every action you take imprints her onto this reality. Not some far-off place, but here, now. Veda undid her seatbelt and threw herself into my arms. Tears fell from her eyes and dropped into her hair. She even had the same smell. She'd grown so fast. She was practically the size her petite mother had been. And for an instant, it almost felt like it was the other woman I was holding. Don't you see? I said, gripping her tightly suppressing her sobs and also my own. I held her, 
If I didn't let go, the moment wouldn't pass. Her mother was gone, and I was losing Veda too. But I could still hold her. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Your Mother Isn't in Heaven, written and read by A.C. Phillips. All rights reserved. Copyright 2022. Nashville, Tennessee.